How are we doing this morning? We are finishing up the Judges series today, and this is, is one of the, probably one of the most graphic and uh, really horrific passages in all of Scripture. And so I say that in, in all seriousness, that it, um, really we've been walking through the book of Judges, and the book of Judges, typically a story will end on a high note, right? Like, oh wow, this is amazing, and look at how it ends, and it's so beautiful and happy. But the whole point of the book of Judges is to show what life looks like when there is no king and everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And so in a story where everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes and there is no king, there's only one way for that story to end, and it's not good. It's tragic. It's devastating, and, and, and God wants to shock us with this. He wants us to see how horrible and horrific this is because it's a slippery slope. As we talked a few weeks ago, it's not, it's not a cycle. It's a spiral, right? And it's, it's a downward spiral. And so when we engage in sin, it just looks like a little bit. It's, it looks like, oh, it's not going to hurt. It's not going to be that big a deal. Um, but a little sin leads to a little more sin, leads to a little more sin. Ultimately, the Bible says, leads to death uh, when it's full grown. And so, uh, so the passage is intense. It's serious. Um, I did want to, you know, I'm going to do my best to speak about it. Uh, in uh, family-friendly terms, because I recognize we have a wide audience here uh, today. Um, but I do also want to acknowledge up front that if you're, uh, uh, it does talk about um, some abuse that takes place, and so if that's something that you're particularly sensitive to, or if you're, um, uh, you, you may want to, um, I just want to let you know that up front. And, uh, and, if, and if it's something that you're uh, not comfortable in, in hearing or whatever, then uh, you could sit downstairs or there may be something you want to do. So I've really scared you guys now, right? You're like, what on earth is this going to be? But hey, I, I, I want you to understand uh, with seriousness that we need to look seriously at the warning. God loves us so much. He doesn't want us to go down the path that the nation of Israel went in this time period. And so he wants to warn us with seriousness. And, and that's what he's going to do through the passage uh, today. Will you join me in a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to receive the word this morning? Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for um, uh, just uh, as we were reminded this morning uh, that we have freedoms. We have freedoms to gather and, and to, to worship you as you've called us to without hindrance from, from outside forces or from, uh, from, from government opposition. God, that we have a freedom to do that because people have sacrificed, people have, have given their lives to this cause, Lord, uh, for the freedom that we, we, uh, we receive. But with that freedom comes uh, responsibility that uh, that we must choose to do wisely uh, with the freedom that we've been given. And um, God, I pray that we'll take the message that, that you've delivered in this passage to heart today, and that we'll be convicted where we need to be convicted, and we'll be committed uh, to be recipients of the grace that you offer to us, and that um, even in our most broken state that you come to us while we were still sinners, you died for us. We know that as the baseline of everything that we look at today. And so uh, I just pray that we would we would see it in balance, and, and it would just remind us how uh, powerful it is and important it is to follow you uh, in complete obedience, God. Help us to do that, because we can't do it in our own strength. Oh, we need you, and we ask you for that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so if you turn to your Bibles uh, to chapter 19 in Judges, and really we're just going to walk through the story. It takes three chapters to get through. Uh, it talks about uh, a powerful sin uh, that the tribe of Benjamin engages in. Uh, is Act 1. Act 2 will flow into the retribution uh, that's, that's taken out on them for this sin. And then Act 3 will be the restoration, the attempt to restore them uh, after they've been punished and judged. And um, uh, there's plenty of messed up stuff in all three acts. So uh, you would have a, a hard time finding a, a movie or a Hollywood play. It probably or it wouldn't get published because it's so... Um, 
so demoralizing and so graphic, but let's, let's take a look at, at what it says here. Uh, it says uh, in verse 19, beginning in, in verse 1, or chapter 19, verse 1, it says, In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. He took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. Okay, so setting up the context here, uh, a concubine is, is somewhere in status between a wife and, and a slave. And so uh, the, the man would take on a concubine to function in many of the roles of a wife, but she didn't have the rights or the privileges or the respect or the honor of being a wife. She was treated more like a slave. And so it was, it was a position in its nature that was uh, counter to God's plans and purposes uh, that he had laid out for, uh, for, for men and women to be in a, in a relationship, a man and a woman married together, mutually committed uh, to one another for each other's benefit, uh, mutually submitting in love to one another. That's the picture. That's the, the beautiful picture. We looked at that in Ephesians a few months back, at this picture of what a perfect marriage is supposed to look like. This is far, far from that, right? So he brings on uh, this concubine, a second-class wife slash slave, and then she's unfaithful to him. Uh, she cheats on him. And then she runs away to her father's house, and after four months, we don't know why he waited four months. Some speculate he was trying to cool down. He was angry. Some say that he cared so little for her that he just didn't even bother until after four months. He's like, all right, yeah, I guess I should go collect her. And so he goes, and the father greets him with joy. And I'll summarize kind of what happens, but basically he shows up at the father's house. For three days, they eat and feast together, and, and it's possible because the father wants to make sure, like, hey, is he really going to take my, my daughter back in and take care of her? Is, uh, you know, is he here to exact retribution on her? What's going to happen? And after they party for three days together, on the fourth day, he gets up to leave, and the dad's like, hey, can you stay one more day? Uh, you know, let's just have some more food, and let's, let's drink some. And so by the afternoon, he's like, man, you're drunk, and <laughs> you should not be getting on the road, so, so just stick one more day. And so then the fifth day, the same thing happens again. He he feeds him, and he says, hey, why don't you stick around? And so but towards the end of the fifth day, he's like, yeah, and you just need to stay. And then he's like, no, listen, I got to get back home. I got to go. And so, so they take off later in the day, which was, was ill-advisable at this time, um, and, uh, and they take off. And they're going along. They come to uh, Jabus, which ultimately becomes Jerusalem, but at this time it's enemy-occupied territory. And he's like, hey, I don't want to stay in one of these cities. Let's keep going until we can come to an Israelite city because we can expect uh, hospitality. We can expect protection when we get to one of these other cities. And so we pick it up in verse 14. It says, They passed on and they went their way. The sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Uh, now you might say, yeah, that, that makes sense. If some vagabond comes rolling into your neighborhood, you're not going to be like, hey, dude, you want to come spend, right? But at this time, there weren't hotels and motels, and uh, you couldn't go on Travelocity and book ahead, right? So, so it was a natural thing that the hospitality was an expected thing. And we see this throughout Scripture, that there's an expectation to be hospitable to strangers who are traveling through. And so it would have been expected if you went into an Israelite town and you were an Israelite that someone would say, oh, hey, you're a traveler. Where are you from? Come, stay in my home. Let me show the hospitality of the Lord to you. But they went through town and nobody offered them any hospitality. And so they're standing in the town square. The sun is going down. They're kind of confused about this whole thing. Behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, so from the same area, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. He 
He lifted up his eyes and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, hey, where are you going and where do you come from? They said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I, come, I went to Bethlehem and Judah and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. The old man said, peace be to you. I will care for your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. To catch the, there's like this ominous undertone in there, right? He's like, he's like, hey, yeah, yeah, I'll take you in, but whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square, right? It's like a perfect line or a scene from like a horror movie, right? <laughs> like, like, hey, I don't, I don't know what to, like, get inside, get inside. And you're like, why? You know, what's the big, just, just come on, just come on, right? And so there's this sense that something really bad is going to happen, and whatever you're imagining it's going to be, what happens is actually far worse. Um, this is where it gets really, really, uh, really difficult. Uh, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. The man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come to my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them, and do what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. They knew her and abused her all night until the morning, and at the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he had opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine laying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. And then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or had been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Really, like, as advertised, one of the most horrible stories in Scripture, one of the most uh, wretched things that you could imagine. And, um, and, and one thing I want that I hope you can see clearly here is that uh, just because this is captured in the Bible and, and told does not mean in any way that it's condoned. In fact, it's held up as an example of the absolute worst sin um, that could be committed. And so uh, uh, this is shown to us as this, uh, this devastating example. And there's these incredible parallels between uh, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom was held up as the, the most wicked city in the ancient times. And, and an account just like this happened then, that there was two angels that went to Sodom, and the same thing happened. The people of the town came and knocked on the door and said, hey, we want to know these guys, and not know as in we want to get to know them, but know in the biblical sense, if you know what I mean. And, uh, and it, was, it, was, it was horrible, right? In that case, the angels were able to blind the men of the city and get away. But in this case, there was no rescue. There was no escape. And the cowardly man sends out uh, the concubine. Instead of protecting, instead of the men protecting the women that they're supposed to be watching after, uh, they offer them up and send them out uh, to this horrible crowd. Uh, and then apparently somehow the guy was able to sleep that night. <laughs> uh, he woke up in the morning, and, uh, and he, was, he was getting ready to go on his way. He figured she was just gone, and when he opens the door, he sees her there. And he says, hey, get up, let's go, right? Such compassion, right? Um, and then, obviously, she's dead, and so he takes her home, he cuts her in pieces, and he sends her all the tribes. It's a horrible story. It's, it's, it's wretched, and it shows the depths 
of the sin, a little bit of sin, a little bit of disobedience worked all the way out, this is where it ends. This is where it lands. And that's uh, one of the huge things for us to take from this story is that the little bits of sin that we dabble with, we think like, ah, oh, it's, it's not that big a deal. I'm just, I'm crossing the line a little bit, or I'm not even sure if I'm across the line. I think the line's somewhere in here, and I'm, I'm close. I might be a little bit over. But ultimately, where that always leads, given enough time and opportunity, uh, is the most wicked and wretched sins that you can imagine. Well, the people were outraged, as we are outraged, as we read this story, and the people then were outraged. And so they, they gather together. They have him recount the tale. And, and uh, when, when he retells the tale, he kind of leaves out some important details. He says, hey, I went to the city, and they were going to try and kill me. And then they did kill my concubine. He doesn't mention the fact that he offered her up. Uh, he doesn't mention the fact that he was inside drinking the night away while, while this was happening, right? So he presents it in the most favorable light to himself, and he says, hey, what are we going to do about this? And all of Israel, in a way that we've never seen through the whole book of Judges, they all unite together and say, hey, we are not going to stand for this. We're going to come together, and we're going to do something about this. And so we pick up in, in chapter 20, verse 12. It says, the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. The people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, Besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men, among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. These guys were highly trained uh, SEAL Team 6 operatives, right? The men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. And the people of Israel rose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. So what happened here is that uh, they went to Benjamin and they said, hey, this is horrible. You guys need to clean up your own mess here, right? Like some people from your tribe have done a horrible thing and you need to round them up and give them to us so we can put them to death. And instead of agreeing with them, they say, hey, no, these are, whatever they've done, they're our brothers and we're going to protect them. And so they go, they would rather battle and go to war against all of Israel than, than acknowledge the wrong that had been done and deal with it. And so uh, Israel brings 400,000 men, but the way that geographically, the way the battle set up, they couldn't all go at them at once, and so they had to go tribe by tribe. And so they send the tribe of Judah up, and the first day they lose the battle because these Benjaminites were highly trained, powerful soldiers. And so Israel loses the battle. They go back, and they weep before the Lord, and they say, should we go up again? And God says, yes, go up again. So they go up again. They lose again. They lose uh, hundreds, thousands of soldiers uh, again on day two, and they come back, and then they really are broken, and they, they weep before the Lord, and they say, God, uh, what, what's going on here? Should we go up again? Are you going to give them into your hands? And finally, God says, yes, this time I'm going to give them into your hands. And so they lay out this battle plan. They set some men in ambush. They draw them out again. They pretend like they're losing. And so the men of Benjamin are chasing them out into the field and drawing them away from the city. And then those who are laying in ambush go in and completely destroy the whole city. They kill everybody. They burn it. The smoke is going up to the sky. And then the men of Benjamin turn around. They see the smoke. They realize what has happened. They're trapped. And Israel uh, essentially slaughters all of them, except for a few. And so we slide down to verse 46. It says, So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned 
and fled toward the wilderness of the rock of Rimmon and remained at the rock of Rimmon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, men and beasts and all that they found and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. And so they, they, they kill all the soldiers. There's only 600 left that they go off to this place where they can kind of hide out and defend themselves. And instead of going and, and finishing them off, they turn around and they go back through the land of Benjamin and they kill and destroy everyone. They burn the cities. They kill the animals. They kill the people. They, uh, what God had originally commanded them to do to the pagans that were living there, to, to these wicked, evil nations that were there, they had now effectively done to themselves. They had turned on themselves and done this. And so what began with a really horrible act that needed justice turned into this incredible civil war where thousands and thousands of people, innocent people, lost their lives because sin was just expanding and multiplying and flourishing. A little bit of sin that somebody thought wasn't that big of a deal <laughs> expanded and grew and grew and grew. Well, that was the retribution over the top. And now in Act 3, we see Benjamin's restoration, and then we'll look at some of the things that we can take away and hopefully learn from this passage. But uh, beginning in uh, chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, No one of us shall give his daughters in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. Wait, what? <laughs> they just chased them down, burned everyone, killed her, and now they're coming to God and saying, God, how, how could you let this happen? Now we're down a tribe. There's always been 12 tribes, and, and now there's only 11. Benjamin is gone. Like, how could you let this happen, God? Do we ever do that in life, right? Do we ever, do we ever look around at the world and we're like, God, how could you let this happen? How, how could you do this, God? Well, we need to be looking in the mirror and say, wait a minute, how, how did we do this? How did we let this happen? So the next day, the people of Israel rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. The people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? They, they didn't care about murdering and killing and slashing and burning, but they're very concerned about not breaking this oath, right? Isn't that the kind of logical inconsistency we see when we do what's right in our own eyes? Some things we elevate as, I cannot break this rule. This is super important. I don't care. I will go out and party all weekend long, Friday night, Saturday night, doing things that I would never want anybody to know about, but I have got to be there on Sunday morning. I got to be in church on Sunday morning, right? Like, it's this sort of graphic inconsistency that exists in our hearts when we do what's right in our own eyes, and we a la carte choose, like, I like this rule of God. I like this rule of God. Uh, this one I'm not into, Right? We're picking and choosing, and it leads to this place of mass confusion and inconsistency. And here's their plan. It's, it's a horrible plan that they come up with. <laughs> Verse 8, they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, because they made another oath. They said, if anybody doesn't come up here and fight with us, we're going we're to kill them, right? And so like, hey, did, did everybody keep that vow? Well, behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabez-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword. Also the women 
and the little ones. This is their own people. This is not an enemy nation. This is their own within the, tri the tribes of Israel, right? Go there. Strike the women, strike the little ones, and this is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the Rock of Rumen and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead, but they were not enough for them. The people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. So they got 400 women for him, but they're like, wait, there's 600 guys, like, thanks, but uh, it's not enough. It's not good enough. So they come up with another terrible plan. Verse 16, then the elders and the congregation said, what shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? They said there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east side of the highway that goes up to Bethel uh, to Shechem, south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards. And watch, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dance, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. The people of Benjamin did so, and they took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. And then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Man, what a horrible story, right? And so their, their final solution is like, hey, we can't give you uh, our daughters, we swore that we wouldn't do that, but if you come and kidnap some, like if you just kind of jump out of the bushes and kidnap some girls and take them to be your wives, you know, we didn't give them to you, you just took them. So that's a, that's a workable solution. Let's do that, right? What a horrible idea. What a, what a horrible plan. And so there's a few things that I want us to, to learn out of this. Uh, the phone is ringing for the Lord. <laughs> God is calling. Will you answer this morning? The first thing that we should see is that how broken uh, does the idea of a marriage relationship and the relationships between men and women get in this story? It just deteriorates in an incredible fashion. As we talked about already, that, that in Ephesians we have this picture of what a godly marriage is meant to look like. It says, it says wives, submit to your husbands. Help them to be the best leader that they can be. Love them the way that, that the church loves Jesus as he leads. And, and, and husbands, you're supposed to pour yourself out for your wife as Jesus loves the church. That's how we're supposed to love our wives. We're supposed to, we're supposed to put their best interests ahead of our own, that we're supposed to take care of them. We're supposed to provide for them. We're supposed to love them. That's what it's supposed to look like. That's God's plan. And, and I can tell you guys, any marriage that I've ever seen that has been structured that way has been a beautiful marriage that has been one that I would want and desire for myself. And that's the kind of marriage that I'm seeking to have with my wife. That that's the picture of what it's supposed to look like. And when it's done that way, it works beautifully. But when sin enters in and breaks it up, we see it so many places in here, right? First, the Levite had a concubine. So she might have been a second or a third wife for him, pseudo-wife. 
uh, but he was really just using her. He's objectifying her, and we see how much of an object she is because when she's left out on the street, he says, hey, get up, come with me, right? He, he, when, the, when, the, when they want to come and they want to take him instead, he says, here, take her instead, right? He objectifies her. Now, the, the concubine did not deserve anything that happened to her, but remember that way back in the beginning of the story, what began with her? She was unfaithful. So she was in this broken, messed up relationship, but it was meant to be a, a committed relationship, and she broke away from that and went with someone who wasn't her husband. And so, so, so there was brokenness there. The men of the town obviously had some serious issues with their understanding of how marital relationships are meant to work, right? Like they were, uh, they were willing to take men, women, whatever they could get their hands on. It was, it was a horrible scene. The, the older Ephraimite was said, here, take my virgin daughter rather than this stranger. I don't know about you guys, but if I'm in a situation where I've got my family there and, uh, and a stranger, I'm going to tell the stranger, good luck, buddy. <laughs> Here's a sword. <laughs> Defend yourself, right? I'm not sending my daughter out, right? So, so, so this, this brokenness, this brokenness and the understanding of a man's uh, job to protect his family, it's broken, and then the people of Israel come up with these, these solutions. They go and they slaughter an entire city except for the young women, and they take the young women and give them as wives to the men of Benjamin. I bet those were some awesome marriages, right? Like, hey, I saw you kill my parents and my, my siblings, and now you're taking me and you're giving me to this guy. Thank you. This is going to be a great marriage, right? And then they, how about the kidnappers? Were they, were they any better? Like, uh, I mean, what a messed up scenario. And, and this is what happens when we objectify, in particular, that we objectify women. And sadly, we live in a culture, right? The greatest hero story of our culture is this. Follow your heart, right? Follow your dreams. Do whatever seems right to you. That that's what our culture is constantly telling us. I, I, you know, I love the movie Frozen. I've enjoyed it. I've seen it about five times, and I've listened to it about a thousand times in our van as we're driving, right? And, you know, Elsa's anthem, right, that every kid can't stop singing, right? But, but, but the, big, the center of it is no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free, right? Hey, we're most free. John Lennon in Imagine says, right, imagine there's, there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell. Wouldn't that be awesome if there's no, there's no God, there's no punishment, it's just humanity, a brotherhood of man? No. This is what that looks like. <laughs> this is what no right, no wrong, no rules. This is what it looks like. When we're not following God's rules. And it's, it's a depressing place to be. And, and we're, we're living in a nation that is glorifying this way of life. And so we've got to be careful as, as followers of Jesus that we are not adopting these practices of our culture. That we're not letting our guard down and saying, God, I know what you've called me to, but, but everybody around me is doing this. And they don't seem to be paying the price. And, and, and you might not immediately feel the weight of it. But down the road, how is it going to affect the people around you? Right? The con when, the, when the Levite took the concubine, he's like, yeah, I know, I, this isn't really part of God's plan, but this is what's happening in the culture. I think this is fine. I can do this. And look at how that spiraled so quickly out of control. The second thing that we see here is that, um, that their understanding of justice is completely broken. Well, we're not following God's ways. When we do what's right in our own eyes, we each have our own sense of what's just and fair. And one of the, the fascinating ways that this plays out is that, that our people are right. We justify the actions of our people. We demonize the reactions of their people, right? And so the tribe of Benjamin said, yeah, these guys did that. That was messed up, but you're not going to come and kill them. These are our people. This is our blood. You, you can't mess with them. You mess with them, you mess with us, right? So they valued kinship, uh, being 
fellow countrymen more than they valued what God had decreed as morally right and wrong. And we, uh, if we're not careful, we tend to do this, right? We live in a very polarized society where it's an us and them mentality. Those guys, they're idiots. They're, they're whatever. We demonize entire uh, races of people, groups of people, cultures of people because of the actions of a few. Rather than looking at people, Jesus came and he was so incredibly uh, equal in, in everything that he did. When Jesus came, uh, he came clearly for the nation of Israel. He made that clear. He said, hey, I'm, I'm here for, for, for God's people. I come to them first. But he was so kind to the Samaritans and to the Romans and to the Greeks that came to him. And ultimately, he gave his life on the cross and he tore the veil so that we could all enter in. If there was ever anyone who was not an us versus them person, it was Jesus. He's our example. He says, you're all broken and you're all in need of the sacrifice that I'm going to make for you. And I do it willingly because I love every single one of you. He said, uh, bless those who curse you. Pray for those that are your enemies. This is the example that we're supposed to follow. And so when we, get, uh, when we demonize them, whoever them is in our mind, we're headed down the path that Israel was headed down at this time. The third thing that I see here really clearly is that they began to value religion over morality, over the heart of God. They said, man, we made an oath. And because we made an oath to God, that is the most supreme important thing, is not to break that oath. And so because we don't want to break that oath, we're going to kill, and we're going to destroy, and we're going to kidnap, all so that we don't have to break our oath. It's a religious spirit in which we try to control God and say, God, hey, look, I'm operating within the line, so you have to, you have to accept what I'm doing here. And they didn't know the heart of God. And when we do the same, when we adopt a religious attitude, when we say, hey, I'm going to stay between the lines, but I got a lot of freedom in here, and my heart's not totally in it, but I'm just going to do it. I'm going to make sure that I don't step across the line. If we're doing it just uh, to justify our actions, we, we've completely missed what Jesus was all about. And this is what the Pharisees were guilty of, right? They were worried about Sabbath laws and cleanliness laws, and they were missing the miracles that were happening in front of them. Someone could be healed and get up and walk, and they would say, hey, you shouldn't have done that on Sunday or Saturday at their time, right? It's Sabbath. You, you can't heal on the Sabbath. What? what? Don't you know the heart of God? And so we have to look for this in our own selves. Are we being religious rather than connecting with the very heart of God? And in our polarized, broken, messed up society, there's a lot of people who are doing whatever's right in their own eyes, and it's easy to demonize them and point the finger and say, you are a sinner, you are against God, you're doing what's wrong in his eyes, and we fail to turn the mirror back on ourselves and say, yeah, you are a sinner, but guess what? I'm, I'm a sinner too, and but I've been saved, I've been redeemed, and, and that same salvation that I received is offered to you. And that's what I see that's amazing here, is the most amazing thing out of this whole story is that God just didn't pull up tent stags and leave, right? When they prayed to God, he answered to them. That God continued in relationship with them, and, and there's a part of it that it's hard to swallow. Like, we want God to be like, you know what, I'm done with you guys. <laughs> you, you dropped the ball so badly. You've messed things up so far. I could take another name. I'm going to take somebody else. I'm done with you. That's what we would expect. That's almost what we want God to do. But, but if we're honest, we need to look at ourselves and say, thank God that he didn't do that. Because the Bible says while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were opposed to him, while we were dead in our sins, that, that he sent Jesus to save us. And so the same God that stayed with Israel through this brokenness stays with us through our brokenness. And when we, when we mess up and we fall and we backslide and we, and, we, and, we, and we turn our backs on the God who saved us, when we're convicted of it and our heart is broken, we know that when we run back to him, he will 
receive us because he loves us. And he convicts us because he wants us to come to him. And so if you're convicted of something this morning, if something God has placed on your heart, if you recognize that you have adopted the practices of the world, if you recognize that you've been doing things uh, that were right in your own eyes, I want to encourage you that the best thing you can do today is repent and turn to God knowing that he will receive you and he will forgive you and he will bring you back into a right relationship with him if you have the humility to do that. Now, he may cause you to, to experience the weight of your sin. He may cause you to, uh, to work uh, to bring about reconciliation. And that's good work to do. That's what we should do. We should set our course for that. But we know that our forgiveness is, is complete and total because of not what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. We're going to close up.